This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Amazing people that aren't us. At 24 years old, Emma G was living her life to the full with a busy social life, running half marathons, climbing mountains, playing netball and working full-time as an occupational therapist. But a visit to hospital to have a running injury checked out led to the discovery of an abnormality in the base of her brain, and it led to brain surgery, and Emma suffered a stroke during the operation, which placed her into a coma. Nine days later, she woke up to a body that was changed forever. Emma G is a stroke survivor, and I'm proud to call her my cousin, and she's here today to share more of her story with us. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, Sam. Thank you. Emma, it's so great having you on the show. Um, for for those of us who don't have you as a cousin, because you do sound like a pretty exceptional cousin to have, <laughs> can you can you give us the story and what took place in the lead up to your stroke? Yeah, well, um, Duncan, as Sam said, I was uh, had an amazing childhood. I lived great memories with my um, my whole extended family, including Sam and. Uh, amazing childhood and was quite active. Went on to study and was a therapist working with stroke survivors to really themselves and was also really active in um, yeah, running and trekking with friends and uh, playing netball. So everything was, I was feeling quite well. Um, but unfortunately, was diagnosed with a uh, a, a congenital or deformity I was formed in my brainstem, mm. which um, was quite problematic and quite fatal and had to be removed. And in that surgery, I had my stroke. So, yeah, a really um, an amazing um, first 24 years of my life, which I guess fueled me for the longevity of what was going to come take place so yeah hmm. can you tell us a bit about your recovery emma because it's been a number of years now since you had your stroke and how much work has it taken in your recovery um uh, i think um I, it's an unbelievable amount of work it's been probably uh nearly well, 13 and a half years now since my stroke and basically, I went from being a really active person pre-stroke to suddenly being a recipient of the care I once provided as a therapist and was unable to blink or swallow or move, um, was tube-fed, um, catheterized, and really tormented both physically and also dealing with the invisible aspects which you couldn't see like pain and fatigue and um, just the huge emotional toll that it had on myself and my family. So I think rehab for me, even though it was more intense in the acute phase, has been an ongoing journey throughout the last 13 years and it will be for the rest of my life. Um, Yeah, but I think that has I've learnt over time the huge, um, you know, the, a lot of the physical rehab that's taken place has to be balanced with the, you know, the other aspects of one's recovery, um, and and really focus on not just the survivors' recovery, but all those that are supporting them.
I think back to 24, and I think to myself, I'm, I'm 38 now. Gosh, I wish I had a 24-year-old body. I'd, I'd treat it a whole lot better and look after it and to be a lot more active than I yeah. was. I mean, you there had a stroke, you know, kind of peak physical fitness, and then you start this audacious road to recovery. But you're also journeying alongside a twin sister who didn't walk the same path path to you i mean do you have moments of frustration where you kind of look at your sister and go hey wish i had your your setup right now yeah i think you know being a i think that comparison whether it's a sibling a, a twin sister um or not it's inevitable and you know i i i guess for me i have always used that comparison as a benchmark really to drive me and rather than be resentful or bitter towards you know her going on that path I very much tried to step up to that line and in this and like I've said in my book um, reinvent myself so um, I think having that um, foundation of being quite fit and healthy before my stroke definitely has um, carried through my rehabilitation and given me that underlying discipline um, and the and what I really valued in that that I could really apply in my recovery as well. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, it's an ongoing process and um, being a twin, having that constant comparison and my twin sister going on to get married and have kids and do everything that I thought I would get going to do could, I guess, be a really big kick in the gut. Um, but it actually has fueled me to um, to try and live my life in the best way I could. And um, despite having so many difficulties every day... Um, I think we share so many commonalities and share so many values that do, I guess, are instilled in us from our childhood that do, I guess, I guess, um, help us in our, we do have the likeness, even though we lived our, our paths have gone such different ways. Um, if that makes sense? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Emma, how difficult was it um, shifting from being an occupational therapist to then being the patient in your, in your recovery? Yeah, uh, extremely. I think but it was a really, uh, I think a lot of people could relate to this sudden, you know, unexpected um, role reversal. It was really, really difficult for me and also my therapist um, to try and grapple with um it was really really difficult um as i said uh, you know to be a provider of health care and then suddenly a recipient of it for a long many years i really just wanted the old end to come back and i took a while to accept i guess what i couldn't change but then go and change what I could, and um, I guess choosing to be an awesome patient and and not try and wear the hat of a therapist and go, okay, yeah, well, 
I know my therapist can do and deliver the care in a better way than I could. There are things as a patient I can now draw on from and now I guess apply from the theory that I had as a therapist to my own recovery. So, um, and through writing my book and um, in my work now, I guess really drawing on that dual insight that's really helped me hopefully enable other therapists and providers and their their patients and carers to really um, step up in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. You got this phrase, Em, um, that it's not what happens to you that matters. It's how you choose to deal with that. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, you, you, you look at the track of your life and and this event unfolds, you have a stroke, but then as a result of that, you're now an international communicator, a motivational speaker, you've written books. Um, you know, your, your life has changed drastically, but it's almost like... Uh, You've 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 discovered a new deep positive attitude that allows you through this event to carry a voice that you you may never have had before. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I think having that intrinsic motivation and drive and that positive outlook has been so so instrumental in in sustaining my recovery and um and. That is definitely reinforced by the amazing support network I have. And I often say to everyone around me, you know, it's that that drives me, it's that that fuels me. And um, it is, a, it is a, I, I um, am really grateful now. There are days when I don't feel so great, but having that choice of, of, you know, and and refocusing on what really matters in life really hmm. enables me um, to move forward. So yeah, it's amazing how much having a choice about something really can dictate where you go in life. And that's um, you know, this in every single, even now, every single thing I do, it's so easy to just go, oh, it's too hard. Hmm. But it's amazing how mindset can change that in a second. So um, there's so many things that you know it's it's a lot easier um, when you get in the mindset of doing it to be grateful and be thankful for what you have than focus on what you don't have because you end up having so much more when you are focusing on that thing. Mm. That's fantastic. Yeah. Emma, you know, you, you live every day pushing on as a stroke survivor and you've come such a long way in the last 13 or so years. What are some of the, the day-to-day hurdles that you that you face as a stroke survivor? Um, I think uh, there's quite a few ongoing things that I face, but the more constant things that I do, um, I guess down the track, they're easier to contend with. But, you know, the underlying um, deficits like chronic pain and um, huge fatigue um, is a constant barrier, like an obstacle for me that I have to really think about my day and 
how I'm feeling and the temperature and the weather and certain activities that I'll be doing and balance it that way. Mm. But also, I think initially when I was in more of a vulnerable state and then able to communicate, um, you know, just grappling with um, that, that whole grief of losing who I once was and not being able to communicate or do things in the way that I'd always done them. So I knew no different and people around me didn't know that even though I was so physically impacted, cognitively I was still the same person and so it took a lot of my um, strength to try and physically articulate one word that would probably prove to them that I still had my marbles that I still remembered their name. Mm. Um, so I, I exerted a lot of energy into that because I know the stigma can really, uh, like social people, with strangers pointing and staring at you, how much that really knocks your confidence and really lets you, um, really, really changes how your day pans out, particularly if you're really vulnerable. And I think for me, it's it's amazing in all my work. Um, yeah, I guess it's the discrimination that exists a lot um, um, in society that strangely fuels me to advocate more. Because I think if I find that really difficult, if I have an amazing support network, can return to work, can... You know, um, I have that intrinsic moderation. Imagine those many thousands of Australians who don't have that that need um, that need better someone to advocate for them who do need that voice who can't give that voice. Um, I, I I kind of listen to your story, and I think that if this event, you know. I'm, unfolded in someone's life there's really two avenues you can take right you just you call it quits you take your pension and then just try and figure out how to live or you you take the path that you chose to take um there's this moment okay and and an 18 year old kid um gets gets wheeled in next to you and they've just had a similar event to you and they're sitting there and they're going, this is going to be, cra-, you know, doctors are saying this is going to be crazy hard. It's going to be a fight every single day. You know, there's the fatigue that you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to be really aware of your body, right? This is an 18-year-old who's yeah. just come back from schoolies. As you come alongside that person, what is it that you say to them to help encourage them to walk the same path you walked? Yeah, um, a really good question. Unfortunately, I think it's. I, I think until I mean, even if I was that eighteen-year-old and someone had told me that it was going to be tough, I probably wouldn't have listened to them. Um, I think the best thing that, and I do low work at schools now. I'm resilient and working with people who haven't had to contend with a huge setback in their life at this point. Um, you know, I think it's really knowing what you find meaningful, really remembering your, the importance of your support networks and and tapping into all those things that you already have. 
as a coach and being able to identify what your values are and what's meaningful to you, um, having, you know, practicing those and being mindful of those at present moment, because hearing that things will get easier with time is something I think in that cute phrase, you're in denial and you don't want to hear. Mm. Um, even for me, I was still thinking two years later, even as a therapist, that I would return to running again. Mm. You know, I know that's not realistic, but I think it's that a lot of patients do have that hope mm. and that, you know, and I talk to a lot of therapists about goal setting and how you don't want, you don't want to crush someone's hope, but you need to create stepping stones to it. And sometimes just sitting and being with that in that moment is enough because bombarding information on what's to come, what to expect, every single person is different, but what we do all share is that underlying purpose and meaning and the importance of those that love us around us and what drives us and they're things that we can always carry with us. So I think it's just reinforcing those good things that I would, I know, I don't know what I'd say to an 18 year old, but I don't know how receptive they would be because um, I know when I was 18, I was invincible. Like I I wasn't going to take on, you know, I was fit. I was, I was never going to go through what I went through. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know, but I think, you know, for me having a someone and just going, it's okay to be in a, to, give, to entitle you to just stop and go, okay, this is not, not a good time in your life. Hmm. And not just try and pretend it doesn't isn't happening. Hmm. Um, I think for me that emotionally, you need to um, feel okay to physically be okay. So I think you know sitting with that is the best. You can't you can't deal with any or graph with any just like obstacle. I don't think that you can actually acknowledge it's actually there. As I listen to what you say, it's like it's a it's it feels like it really is a day by day thing. Do you know? Like one day someone yeah. might not be receptive to that, and then the next day they find that strength, and then the next day is just a terrible day. And I think what we yeah. oftentimes do is go, "It's not going to be a bad day. Let's be a good day." And it's like, no, just sit with it being a bad day. It's okay that it's a bad day because you'll get another crack at it tomorrow. And it's okay to feel those feelings. It's okay to say this really is a terrible moment, but it's what you do with that terrible moment that defines you as a person, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, I think um, with our nature, when we see someone that we love and care about or we're trying to get them better to really... Um, try and fix it and and get them going and and in doing that unintentionally try to skip through that grieving process mm. which actually just bites them back in the part in the future. Mm, yeah. um, 
So I think, you know, it's hard because I know for me, I, you know, when I have days when I don't feel so great, I hate in my, in my nature seeing people. It's almost hard to see people brave. So, and I feel a little burden when I'm acknowledging that I'm in a lot of pain today. It's easier not to admit that. Hmm. Um, but I also think it's healthy to, to not internalise it. So in my nature, I'm quite authentic and quite honest and open about things. But I know a lot of people don't, don't disclose it for whatever reason. Um, and it it does really, you know, I'm not really know to get really depressed or they they lose a lot of their social support networks because they get pushed in the way and it's a vicious cycle. Emma, G, you are an amazing human being and um, we're so thankful for you spending time talking with us about your story. And you can actually read more of Emma's story in her book Reinventing Emma if you'd like to check it out. Uh, Emma, G, thanks so much for joining uh, Duncan and I on Hope Breakfast this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.